0: yeah. Y'all just want to clap today. <laughs> Anything else you want to clap about before I keep going? <laughs> uh, I hope that had good reason. But uh, yeah, I want to remind you, Sam is here because he and Kyle are working together toward planting a church in Bahalia Harmony Baptist Fellowship. So, I'll use the opportunity again to say, if you're interested in helping with the church plant, becoming a part of their core team, uh, let them know and start to work toward that goal along with them. Uh, this morning, we're returning to ch- uh, chapter 8 of Acts. Acts chapter 8. <laughs> Acts chapter We have the right graphic up there this week, last week, I couldn't figure out how to fix it so it was just wrong for a while, Uh, but we're back in our series officially. I'll say something, some of you have heard me say this before, but I'll say something that hopefully strikes you, there is a type of belief that does not lead to salvation There is a type of belief that does not lead to salvation. I want to read a passage of Scripture before we get into uh, our text for today. This is uh, in John. Jesus is really in the early days of his ministry, and people are, are wondering, like, all right, is this guy legit? Look at the things he's doing. Listen to the things that he's saying. Eventually, he has all these people following him, you remember on the, on the, the mountainside, he, he multiplied the fish and loaves and fed all these people, and they wanted something. The question was, what were they wanting? They were following him for something. Was it the right thing? Jesus, in the early days, gives us a glimpse of how there is a type of of belief, There is a type of faith that does not lead to salvation. John chapter 2, verses 23 to 20, 25. It's on the screen for you, I believe. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. There's a type of belief that does not lead to salvation. So Maybe if you fast forward in the book of John in your mind to that hillside where he multiplies the fish and the loaves And you start to see, oh, they're after something that he can do for them, something that he can provide for them, but they are not after him. He can be our our eternal bread supplier. Let's make him king, right? I remember being in a Sunday school class one time and and hearing the teaching on the woman at the well, and even she had the wrong conclusion about Jesus at first because he's like, hey, I can give you water that lasts. And she's thinking, man, if you could give me that water, just give me, uh, as the teacher said, give me some indoor plumbing so I can stop coming to this well. I come out here, I come at the time I do because I'm shamed about my life. I can stop walking in front of all these people that talk about me. Give me this indoor plumbing so I can just keep on going with my life in a better situation. Ultimately, she came to realize that Jesus was the one she needed. It wasn't just a change in her atmosphere. It wasn't just a change in her water supply. So you start to see that there is a type of faith that does not lead to salvation. And As as hard as I tried, I even texted Kyle about this yesterday. I think up until yesterday, I kind of had the wrong idea about our text today. I wanted to make it about learning about the Holy Spirit. When in reality, what we have in Acts chapter 8 is a uh, perfect example of a type of faith that does not lead to salvation. Let's read in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25 before we get that. See the progress of the gospel. Stephen is martyred. Persecution increases rapidly. Saul, who later becomes Paul,'s is persecuting. He's, he's leading in the persecution against the church. And then we see the gospel through persecution spread to new peoples, new territories. Uh, those persecuted are scattered because of the persecution, and it was God's providential working to get the gospel to, as we see right here, the Samaritans, the half-breed Jews, which was a huge deal. Let's read in verse 9, Acts chapter 8, verse 9 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. But well, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, that is Philip the deacon, remember, Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Let's ask the Lord's help. Father, we do need your help. Show us the truth of your word, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the Holy Spirit. Show us the nature of true saving faith. And all those who have faith amiss, God, today, would you correct their understanding? Would you correct their hearts? That maybe those who have some kind of faith that has not saved them would find faith in Jesus supremely. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title for today is The Right Type of Faith. The Right Type of Faith. Obviously, this is going to be a time of examining your own faith, examining yourself, lest you be mistaken about the faith that you claim. This, uh, this kind of faith is, is subtle. It creeps into our lives, and we must be on guard against these, these uh, false manifestations of so-called faith. I'll give you this theme today sooner or later, self-serving faith proves to be false faith. Sooner or later, self-serving faith proves to be false faith, a faith that does not save. I'll give you two truths for today. Two truths from this text. First is from 9 through 13. The second is from the remainder of the verses. The first truth, true belief marks the start of Christian life. True belief marks the start of Christian life. False belief, secondly, false belief draws wrong conclusions about God. So first off, true belief marks the start of Christian life. And as we read these verses 9 through 13, we can rejoice in the way that the gospel comes to the people of Samaria. When Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful, this is exactly what he's talking about. And you know, he did that right after the woman at the well. He turned to the disciples and said, hey, look, the harvest is plentiful. And I'm of the opinion that he wasn't looking on a field. He was looking on a mass of people, Samaritans who were dressed in white for their ceremonies, for their religious practices. And he says, look at all these people. The field is white unto harvest. Souls that need to be saved. When Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, this is exactly what he's talking about. These people in Samaria are ripe for faith. They're ready to follow. They're, they're hungry for something that is sure and lasting. And then we're introduced in verse 9 to a, a man named Simon. And we're immediately told of what he was like. And as his countrymen came to Hear about Jesus, as he came to hear about Jesus. Luke records the details in such a way to show that people change when they come to Christ. I think there are a couple of ways that we can see this from the text. Now, I want to be clear I'm talking about this group of people that has come to the knowledge of Jesus, a saving. Knowledge of Jesus, all these people. And then we'll turn to the example of Simon. But here's what the gospel does to these people who believe. It exposes worldly distractions. It exposes worldly distractions. So get this, all these people, they're sort of uh, enamored by Simon's work. I mean, he's a magician. He's an entertainer. This was his livelihood, his way of life, his reputation, his place in the community. This was his identity. Undoubtedly, this was a spiritual stronghold for him and for these people. If we could compare uh, Simon, uh, looking upon Simon would in some way, in some ways, resemble the rich young ruler. Somebody that is looked upon and esteemed, Somebody that distinguishes themselves because of something about them. The rich young ruler, it was his riches and it was his supposed stellar character. For Simon, it was his status. It was his success. It was the fact that he, as they say right here, man, this this is a man that has the power of God. So we have moved beyond entertainer. We're like new level type of esteem here. But Simon, and because of Simon, these people were mired in many obstacles to following Jesus. It's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. It's hard for a person that has it all together, a person who has that success, a person who is esteemed in such a way that to follow Jesus would only look worse in my life. My life will only get worse because of doing that. And this is often the curse of earthly success. You note here that they prop him up as something great, that he had divine power, even divine status. Now, I want to be clear. This is not a fundamentalist sermon on how magic is from the devil But isn't it striking how so many magicians, even in our day, portray themselves as being in touch with the spiritual realm? Like they're accessing something that you can't. So I'll put that right there and I want you to consider that a caution. The text tells us that people of this area, they paid attention to him. It didn't matter what level of society they were from. He entertained them all. Such esteem and such success, such entertainment. Isn't that what drives our society as well? I remember talking to somebody just recently about sports figures and the unbelievable amounts of money that are paid. And it's like, I just don't think that you know they should be paid that much. I don't even remember who I was talking to. They just shouldn't be paid that much. And I was like, well, we're the ones that pay for it. So <laughs> there you go. We want to be entertained and it, it, it's not going to stop. Like, like we will give whatever we can give as long as you keep entertaining us. This is our society. If someone can entertain us, if someone can keep our interest, and it's certainly not the preacher, Man, I fall asleep every time he talks, right? He needs to change it up a little bit. He needs to get more entertaining. Be funnier, Matt. Bring your dog and pony. Getting into a little application, as you can tell. But if someone can entertain us, if someone can keep us interested, if someone even has visible success as the world defines it, we will pay attention to them. I read this week something posted by Pastor H.B. Charles. He was posting a, a, a statement from Paul Washer. Paul Washer has been in some of our videos these past few weeks on Wednesday nights. Here's what Washer said. He said, I have the greatest fear that the local church today is despised. Tell someone that you have a worldwide ministry and they all bow down. But tell someone that you're a pastor to a group of 30 and they make you feel as though you're a failure. And it's my heart that you folks, that we as a local church would come to see, give me that pastor of 30 that is faithful and you can have the celebrities. Like these people with Simon, we are enamored and we are entertained way too easily by the The shiny trinkets of the world, the novel ideas of the world, the cutting-edge philosophies of the world, we are enraptured by, look at it, pull it out of your pocket, phones that can do everything. We're enraptured by connectivity. We're enraptured by tabloids and celebrity gossip. We are enraptured by memes on memes on memes. And at some point, there probably needs to be a repentance. We're enraptured. We're entertained. And you say, as long as my phone can can keep me entertained, I'm going to love it and cherish it. I hope you're terrified. I hope you're terrified at that thought. I hope you're convicted like I am at that thought. We are ready for the next new product. We're ready for the latest device. We move on from one thing to another as long as we're entertained. We move from one preoccupation to another preoccupation. We move from one project to another project. We move from one distraction to another distraction as long as we are entertained. But let me ask you, saints, let me ask you, when will our preoccupation be God and the Christ of our salvation? As Samantha brought to our attention a few weeks ago in the Wednesday night study when will God be the great distraction the one that finally takes you away from all this mundane and meaningless stuff so that you can see him and know him and all the things in the world stop to get your uh, stop getting your attention maybe you're phone receives a little less of your worship. When will God be that great distraction? Note also verse 11. They paid attention to him for a long time. They paid attention to him for a long time. Can you imagine? It wasn't the same magic trick every time. That gets old. How many times can the people in Vegas continue to perform the same show? It gets old. They are forgotten unless they find a new way to entertain. It wasn't the same trick every week. It wasn't the same routine every week. No, he had to drum up new ideas create new tricks and plan new routines if they were going to stay interested and if he would continue to be successful. Jumping ahead on application again, but folks, we cannot be that church. And there are many churches like this. They go from one gimmick to another in order to keep people interested. One marketing campaign to another in order to keep people coming. Something that will really just, you know, get that interest from folks. God help us. God help us if we become like that. The reality is that the novelty wears off. The novelty wears off. You see, what happens to these people, eventually, with with any wisdom at all, people begin to ask questions Are we getting anything of substance? Are we getting lasting answers, lasting meaning, lasting joy? Is anything eternal about this? Are we getting answers, good answers, sufficient answers to our biggest questions? And so you may be able to entertain people with worldly things for a long time. But eventually they're going to realize that they need something more. And it's not a new trick, it's not a new gimmick, it's not a new show. It's not a new routine. It's the eternal God. It's the infinite God made known to us in the Son, Christ. So, fairly long sub-point there. The gospel exposes worldly distractions, but then secondly, it initiates immediate and lasting effects. It initiates immediate and lasting effects. Luke spells it out quickly. He says, When they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, note this real quick. Do you see the simple order of events? There's an order of events here. Preaching leads to faith, leads to baptism. Preaching the gospel leads to people believing the gospel, and then they are baptized to identify with the Christ of the gospel. And I'm sorry to sound like a typical Baptist preacher, but these steps are not difficult to grasp, and they are not complicated in Scripture, It is the clear, repeated pattern throughout the New Testament that people hear the gospel, they repent and believe, and they are baptized. This is why we at Cedarview Baptist Church do not sprinkle infants. This is why we set this standard for all who would join this church. Preaching is followed by belief which is followed by by baptism and its baptism just like the one that Jesus did where he came up out of the water it means immersion it means to go under water this is the pattern throughout scripture so this is our pattern as a local church these are some immediate effects these people identify with Jesus they're baptized but then there're also some lasting effects We know the novelty of entertainment wore off because they were ready for answers. Isn't it it funny how Philip comes along, they hear the gospel and say, oh, this is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been hoping for. Hey, Simon, the shows were nice and you had us believing that you were divine. But this is the real deal. So they got the answers. They were ready to let go of the trinkets and the magic trips that they finally realized that they have come to the fountain of life. They have come to the the word of life and there's no more groping around in the dark, following after the world's distractions. And I would turn it to uh, you, believer. Believer, if your faith is weakened, consider this. Might you be mistaking God for just another form of entertainment or way to serve yourself? It's really easy to blame it on a boring preacher. It's really easy to blame it on a church that just don't get into it, you know? Really easy to do those kind of things. When are you going to actually address the root problem, and that is, as we've been studying on Wednesday, your view of God? If you've grown bored with God, the problem is not with him, it is with you. If your Christian life feels loveless and powerless, you've simply mistaken the fountain of living water for a broken cistern. If we can say it this way, you've developed a hole in your bucket so that when you put into the well that is Jesus, you're not bringing up anything. The lasting effects are there for you Because the infinite God does not change. The infinite God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I I already know somebody's thinking, well, he doesn't change. He's the same all the time. That's kind of boring, right? It would be boring if he were exhaustible or containable. It would grow old if he were wholly comprehensible to the human mind. It would lose its luster if he weren't the greatest treasure over all creation. But he's not those things. He is not exhaustible, containable, little. He is not something that can be studied and known. And then we move on to another subject. Every encounter with him uncovers new beauty. Every attribute that describes him reveals new layers, new understanding. Every look into the word unpacks more and more of his endless riches. And some of us wonder from time to time, and I'll give you the answer right now. What are we going to do for the rest of eternity? You're going to know the eternal God. You thought you knew him. Well, tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're going to discover more. You're going to peel back the the beauty. You're going to peel back the attributes. You're going to see more and more like the scribe who goes back and again and again and digs deeper and deeper. He finds newer and better treasures and there's no end to that digging. There's no end to the depths of the character and nature of God. So what will you be doing in eternity, you will constantly be impressed by the God who saved you. You will never grow bored. It seems even Simon, even Simon either might actually be ready to admit that his gig was not going to answer the ultimate questions, or he needed some new material, something new for his routine. Simon too, note this, was baptized and began what appears to be a life of discipleship. Continuing with Philip. He began doing the things that believers do. There was something when I was in college that people would do. I still don't really know why. Maybe somebody can tell me. It's just one of those things I never had an answer to. I was in class because I, I wanted credit so I could graduate there were occasionally those people who would audit a course. You know what auditing a course is? You go and you have to do all the classwork. You have to be there all the time. You just don't get credit for it. You're there learning, whatever. Maybe you want to advance your knowledge. I don't know. There's, there's, there's reasons there. Here's what happened. Simon made a profession of faith. And began to do the things that were required or expected or normal for a Christian when ultimately we find out his life actually didn't change. His heart did not change. He was still stuck in the old way of thinking. Commentators suggest that something may have been amiss in Simon's faith. And I tend to agree with them now. I didn't early in the week. Before we deal with Simon, though, let's consider people who truly believed and were converted. That's who we're talking about right here. The mark of this, it marks the start of the Christian life. They truly believe and they begin this new life. Let's consider these people briefly. They repented and bore the fruit of repentance But that doesn't mean that they automatically overcame all the struggles of sin. It doesn't mean that they already, at the beginning, had a flawless understanding of the character and the ways of God. You realize that the the old ways don't just fall off easily. I was with a couple of brothers this week and we were studying uh, Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And the text says that Jesus commanded the people to take the wrappings off of him. Now, I think it's interesting. When he calls Lazarus to life, he still smells like death. He's still wrapped in the wrappings of death. And so when you come to faith, we don't have it all figured out at the start. So no, these people, they're on the right track, but they don't have it put together. And it's okay to not have that put together from day one. And that's why you need to come around people like the saints of God in the local church. That's why you need pastors. That's why you need the help of the Holy Spirit. So that when you come out of that grave, Jesus calls you unto himself and saves you. You start to see the old man, the wrappings of the old man removed and the new creature comes to life. The new creature abounds. Someone who gets saved doesn't automatically have the right ideas about God. In fact, in their infancy, they're entirely dependent upon the church, the Spirit. They're dependent upon God to grow, like a baby longing for milk. And while the gospel starts us on a new path with new desires and new interests in God, new direction, it manifests the evidence of repentance. It is just the start of being reformed and reshaped after God's design, which is Christ. Long first point. True belief marks the start of the Christian life. Secondly, false belief draws wrong conclusions about God. We see this from 14 to 25. Simon becomes the focus of the narrative as you see. Because he exhibits these qualities. He exhibits the qualities of John 2, as we read earlier. There is a faith that does not lead to salvation. What we see in this, this part of the passage is that Simon is not changed. He's not being transformed. He's still using the, the grid of his old life to understand God. His worldview has not Changed. His values and ambitions have not changed. And I hope you see that from the text. Consider this. The apostles, as we continue walking through it, the apostles who are in Jerusalem learn the gospel events in Samaria. They hear of it, they get word of that gospel event. So Peter and John are sent to come, no doubt, to see and celebrate and support the work of mission that's happening in Samaria. But their presence also seems to be a way of authenticating what's happening. Remember what's going on here. We have one local church in Jerusalem. There is no other church in the world. Nobody else has seen the activity of the Holy Spirit except those in Jerusalem that were there for Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit. This local church is it. So it seems like God is using these men to go over here and authenticate What's happening? And I personally believe that this is God's way of establishing the authority of the local church in the lives of these new believers in new territory where there is not yet a local church. Either way, the people who believe on Jesus had yet to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this ought to be a question for you. I hope it is. You see that in verse 16. The Holy Spirit had not been given to them. So, we must ask the question, why didn't they receive the Holy Spirit? I think it's tied to what I just said to some degree. We look in the Scriptures, the normal pattern of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit's indwelling usually comes as a package deal with faith in Jesus. So, Peter says in chapter 2 and verse 38, repent and be baptized and you, he continues, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So baptism and the receipt of the Spirit are always closely joined together. Pohl Hill argues this well in his commentary. In this case, though, the first occurrence of non-Jewish groups of people are coming to faith. There's no local church in Samaria. There's no awareness of the Holy Spirit. There's no teaching on the Holy Spirit that has been given to these people. And these things indicate that God is using this opportunity to teach them and to teach us about the Holy Spirit. The apostles' presence, their actions, their subsequent giving, they were like the conduit of the gift of the Holy Spirit. They lay a foundation for us understanding the Spirit and other Trinitarian truths, beautiful truths, incomprehensible truths. Luke tells us that the apostles prayed for them, verse 15, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. They followed this up with the laying on of hands on these new believers. Peter and John knew receipt of the Spirit was necessary, and so they prayed, and they acted in accordance with what they knew, the will of God to be here. Now Simon, a magician, observed Did you hear me read? And immediately saw (laughs) he saw next level magic status. I mean, like he stumbled upon the best business plan ever. TV specials, right? Endorsements, fame, book sales. It didn't even matter what he got to talk about, because everybody will believe him because he's famous. That's what we do. Oh, they got a lot of money. They made a made a big business. They did well for themselves, so they can teach me whatever they want to teach me. It doesn't matter if they know anything or not. He shows his low view of God. He thought he could buy this kind of power, bottle it up, and then use it for his purposes. Man, if I could be the dispensary of the Holy Spirit, that's what he's thinking. His offense is threefold, and we'll wrap up quickly here because I've already jumped into some application. He tried to buy the Holy Spirit. He reduced the Holy Spirit to a power or a product. He assumed he could control the Holy Spirit. So I want to be clear, y'all hear me, as we come to the conclusion here, the Holy Spirit is not a thing to be bought and sold. He is not a force. He is not an it, understand? He is the all-powerful God. He is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is personal. He knows us. He ministers to us. He teaches us. He guides us. He empowers us all in numerous different ways. He exhibits all the attributes of God, co equal with the Father and with the Son. So, hear this God cannot be bought, God relates to us personally. God cannot be controlled or contained. Simon, however, sought to commercialize the Holy Spirit for his own gain. And I hope you just look into our even Christian culture, Christian society, and tell me that's not what you see. I'm going to take God and I'm going to use him for my own purposes. Oh, let me call myself a public figure. Let me make myself a a bookseller, whatever. I want to get on the top of the charts. Let me use God to get where I need. And maybe you're not the one who has a lot of fame or a lot of money or a lot of status. But do you not do the same thing? I want to be happy. Maybe God can get me there. I need to have friends. Maybe God's people can be my friends. I'm glad you have friendships with the people of God, but it is about God and not your friendships. Oh, but we in the church, we're good at commercializing the gospel. We're good at commercializing God. We're good at selling religious products. Very good. We have been trained so well by this culture to reduce God to a product, reduce God to a power. Let me bottle this up. People will be impressed with me. All the while, as we've been learning, God is robbed of his eternal glory. We're thieves, glory thieves. We're at the end. If this type of faith, faith, this type of belief that does not lead to salvation, if it exists in us in any form, we too must repent, as Simon is instructed, and rebuke strongly. We must repent of this wickedness. We must pray for forgiveness. We must acknowledge our condition. As he says, man, in the gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. We don't want to be caught up in that. In our grief, it's fitting even to call upon the intercession of others, lest our faith prove to be altogether false. So there are some today who, uh, can we just be honest? Like, Like, I know you signed up for Team Jesus because... Well, it meant I didn't have to go to hell. Signed up for Team Jesus because, well, I thought it was going to mean my life would get better. You signed up because you wanted some personal end goal, happiness, satisfaction, whatever, and let me tell you, all those things come. But God is not a means to your goals. He is the goal. He is our wisdom. He is our joy. He is our treasure. And the only way that you can endure what the Acts Church endured is by holding him in that proper place. Supreme. Preeminent over all. And then when affliction comes, persecution comes, when you get a diagnosis, when somebody you love dies tragically, you don't have just a means to happiness, but you have the God of all creation and you have his son, your savior. Maybe there's someone who would repent today and say, I have viewed the gospel wrongly. I have used God. I am turning from that. I am truly surrendering him. I'm asking him to save me. Maybe that's you. Maybe you, believer, you've got caught up in the commercialization of God, the religious products. Maybe you've learned that in the way that you treat the people of God. In reality, we start to see what that looks like in our lives. I hope you're seeing that. If that's you today, today is an invitation to repent. Be restored. I'll be available down front. If you want to pray with me, if you want to confess sin, you want to talk about anything, counsel, whatever, as we sing, let's pray. Father God, we're, we're, Astonished at times. The way that we mutate what is such a good thing, a thing that honors you. We we turn it into a perversion. God, we want to not be a people who use you, who Have a selfish, self-serving view of who you are. We don't want to be those people, Father, help us to know you, to be satisfied in the knowledge of you through your son. We're thankful for Jesus, how he came.